0: no greater day in history than the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we're pausing from the series that we've been in. In fact, we finished that series and we're going to another one next week. And uh, we thought, come on, we just need to focus on the resurrection of Jesus this afternoon. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, but let me just say a few words before we get there. I think over this last year, we've all been tested in so many different ways, haven't we? I started watching a program last night called Pandemic 2020. Have you been watching it? And it just charts uh, people's experiences from different countries around the world about their pandemic experience. One of them is a doctor from London, and she works in an ICU down there. And it's really interesting because I had fully anticipated with this woman that the moment she would get most upset would be talking about the deaths that she witnessed and she did she got emotional was talking about those but she didn't break down you know the moment she broke down when she talked about how it was her 40th birthday that year and she had all this stuff planned and she didn't get to do it see i think there's two forms of fear that have been prevalent amongst us in this last year One is the fear of death. The other is the fear of not living life as we think it's supposed to be lived. It's the fear of missing out on life. It's more than FOMO. It's not just missing out on one night. It's missing out on how life is supposed to be. And let me tell you that Easter Sunday Resurrection Sunday is good news, not just because Jesus rose from the dead and defeated death, amen, hallelujah, what amazing news, but also that we do not have to miss out on life to the full. Both of those feelings are actually legitimate. They're legitimate if this is all there is. They're legitimate if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We should feel like that if Jesus didn't rise. But if the Easter message is true, and Jesus really did rise from the dead as the first fruits, this first and a whole new humanity, a whole new creation, then everything for everyone has changed. And this is the best news there could possibly be answered in a way we would never have thought of that makes perfect sense so maybe you're feeling anxious today about missing out what am i missing out on maybe you maybe you call it your calling i'm missing out on my calling what is my calling lord well there's good news for you in jesus resurrection because you will never, if you have put your hope in Jesus, there's no way that you're going to miss out in the long run on what it means to live life to the full. Oh, this world can be depressing, let's be honest. We all felt a bit that this year, haven't we? A bit of melancholy at times. Well, that's because we are in, we have been in Adam. Because this world is tainted by sin. But there is now this glorious opportunity to be in Jesus, a new man, a new person leading us, a new humanity for us to exist in. So before we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, um, I just want to remind us of what we know about the resurrection of Jesus, okay? The Old Testament repeatedly anticipates the resurrection of a Messiah. Jesus repeatedly said that he himself would be killed and that he would rise again from the dead three days later. Three women had watched Jesus die. Appalling scenes. Friend, son, master. Suffered, died, tortured, they watched it all unfold, they watched a spear go into his side and water and blood flow out. And then they come to a tomb on the third day, to his tomb, to the tomb where he'd been buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And as they approach, they approach with spices and ointments. Why? Because they expected him to be. They'd seen him die. His body was surely rotting by now, decaying, starting to smell. He needed covered an ointment. Pilate, the Roman governor, had been satisfied that Jesus was dead by the reports he was given. Joseph of Arimathea, one of Jesus' very few wealthy followers, was given permission to remove Jesus' body from the cross because they were so sure he was dead and put him in the tomb. Early On Sunday morning, that's when the three women turn up. And when they go down to where Jesus had been buried, they ask, Who will roll away this stone? What an excellent question to ask, because this stone was enormous. You would not see this stone in a strongman competition with Scandinavians everywhere. This was enormous. Who's going to move this thing? It also had a Roman seal on it. And up to this point, it had remained on it, and you would have needed permission. That's why the woman needed permission to remove this seal. Breaking a Roman seal was certain death. Who would have done that? A Roman guard should have been waiting there. Now, this isn't just one guard. When it says Roman guard, it means that there were 16 soldiers who took it in turns to be on shift, four of them resting, 12 in a semicircle around the tomb, protecting the tomb, making sure that no one came and tampered with this tomb because all these rumors had to go away now. So it had to be finished with this whole scandal. And so there they were around the tomb. Maybe someone bribed them? Could they have bribed them? I really doubt that. Who's going to bribe them? Whose interest is In bribing them, Jesus' followers, these poor Galileans, only one or two people who seemed to be rich that followed him, I doubt they could have done it. And if they did, they would have had to have managed to convince all 16 of them to go with this plan, and then for those 16 to go away and spend money in an inconspicuous way, because if it became obvious that they had money to spend, then they'd have been killed. That seems very unlikely to me. Then as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, Jesus appeared after he had died to Peter, to Cephas. That was another name for Peter and the disciples. And at one time, 500 people appeared uh, before Jesus, or Jesus appeared to 500 people all at the same time. And now we see, if you just piece the different parts of the Bible together, different parts of the New Testament, there's at least ten times stated there as to where Jesus appeared before pe- different people. And we know, just by reading it, there's inference that there's more, uh, more times that Jesus has been teaching and with his disciples than that. People even get to touch his scars. Then we read about the disciples' lives after Jesus rose from the dead in such stark contrast to their lives as disciples before Jesus rose from the dead, before Jesus ascended on high and poured out his spirit. They were bumbling around before, had no idea of what they were doing, and now suddenly God uses them in power to build the church, and the church expands across Asia Minor and beyond, across the world, the known world at the time. And then these disciples, they're apostles, Every one of them, except one, is killed for this faith they've put in Jesus. All they had to do was recant. Just one of them. Oh, we made it all up. It was a scam. I'm telling you, it was a scam. Don't kill me. Just one of them to fear death enough to do that. Because they weren't sure about where they were going. But they were all totally assured about where they were going. Why? Because they had seen Jesus. They'd seen him risen from the dead. They'd spent time with Jesus when he had his scars and he taught them. And then he he told them to wait on the Spirit. And the Spirit came upon them. And they were there at Pentecost. And the church was born. And they went out and they told people. And miracles happened. And the church just exploded. For me... That's enormous amounts of evidence. And not only that, remember, these are a persecuted bunch of people. The institutions, the powerful people didn't want these people around. They didn't want their message spreading. They wanted to stop it. They wanted to put an end to it. Any of the writings that they found, they would try and burn them. Yet, we still have so much written evidence from before the third century when the Roman Empire eventually took on uh, Christianity as its official official, um, religion, is the word I'm looking for. And before that, all this evidence is there to say that these people had seen Jesus, they'd been with him. They believed in His name and His powers at work through them. Jesus rose from the dead. I was chatting to a friend of mine a few years ago, and he was going through some real doubts in his faith, and uh, we had this real serious conversation in the pub, went on for hours, and uh, it was a great chat, I'm really honest. And one of the things that he turned to me and said, he said, "Listen, here's the thing. This guy's he's an intelligent guy." Well reasoned, thinks things through fair. You know what? The one thing that really gets me is the evidence for the resurrection. Just can't get past it. So he's got all this intellectual debate going on in his head. And he can't get past it. It looks like Jesus would have it looks like Jesus rose from the dead. What do I do with that? You believe, you follow. Jesus is alive. Turn with me, 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read from verse 35. So Paul in this whole chapter is talking about why we should believe in bodily resurrection. Starting in verse 35, it says this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish what you sow, does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So, will it, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable; it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor; it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then this saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Is not in vain. All right, there's a lot in there. We're not going to cover it all this afternoon. Don't worry, um, but we'll try and cover most of it. Okay, or the general themes. Verse thirty-five: How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Are they going to come? In Corinth, these were not genuine questions. These were sarcastic questions. These were, come on. You can't believe that kind of questions. And so that is why Paul's response is quite firm. All right, foolish ones. Corinthians, like loads of Glaswegians today, would taunt our claim of resurrection. Hey, That can't possibly be true. How, How can the body just come alive again? It's burnt up or decomposed. Come on, I wasn't born yesterday. Get a grip. End of. He didn't only see that this is where Paul immediately says, Oh, fools. And he says that because he's saying, Look, you're not taking God into consideration here. In the same way that God created ex nihilo out of nothing, the most reasonable explanation for the beginning of the cosmos. In that same way, God brings life from death. Dead not limping and fading and could be resuscitated but dead jesus dead body was given life he didn't just rise in soul form or in our hearts he rose bodily physically i love how uh, john updike and anglican i quite like that name as well updike uh, anglican bishop put it he said this Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered and paused and then regathered, out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Jesus is the first in a new humanity. The first fruits, as Paul put it in verse 20 before our passage. And he's inviting us to live life to the full in a new creation where death and sin will no longer intrude in what was first meant in God's order of creation now this is vital to understanding what God is doing on the earth we need to grasp what happened at the resurrection if we want to understand what God's plan is for the whole cosmos for for us for the earth now and forever. It is not that we just have our souls float up to heaven and they kind of just float around together in some other place. No, no. It is that He is beginning a new humanity with physical, tangible, let's eat and drink together, let's touch, let's hold one another, let's go and feel Jesus' scars together, that kind of physical, tangible, let's sing and talk and walk together, life, true life as it was meant to be. Because Jesus rose bodily, you will become the fullest version of yourself. You will live up to the glory you were made for, verse 43. The thing inside of you that tells you that, oh, life just isn't quite what it's supposed to be. I'm I'm still not quite there. I just don't quite feel it. There's just a wee bit more before I'm happy. I just I can't quite grasp it. One day you'll grasp it, and you'll be able to grasp Jesus' hands and look Him in the face, because He will have done that for you. There'll be no more shame and no more guilt, but a full and righteous life. That's what that word glory means. It's to be honoured and dignified as who you truly are made to be. You see, Jesus is reversing things back to the natural order that God brought in the beginning. And actually, He's making an even better creation than that, a new creation that will be complete. It's going to be glorious. Our focus, I think, when we think of heaven often… It's these silly conversations we have about. Do you think? Do you think we'll be able to fly, Darren? Do you think we will? These are the sort of conversations that we have, and I think, guys, we're missing the point here. The point is not will we be able to fly or not. The point is that we get to be who we've been made to be by God. And we'll enjoy that with the deepest of satisfactions. We'll be completely quenched in our thirst for satisfaction. It's going to be the most marvelous experience forever. When the sun shines, it is doing what it was made to do. When the stars twinkle at night, they are doing what God made them to do. When Jesus returns for you and either raises you from the grave or gathers your dust back together and brings life from death, you will suddenly be living exactly how you were made to live. Tom Wright puts it this way, it is no shame that a dog does not shine, or to a star that does not bark. A miracle is by definition something unnatural in its natural environment, right? But the miracle of the resurrection is this kind of irony that in this miracle we actually come back to what is truly natural, The resurrection of Jesus marks a return to life as it should be because although death became ordinary, natural, it is not natural to God's original purposes. It's in direct opposition to God's original purposes. Sin and death and suffering and all of these, Satan, these things are... Are in opposition to the creation and to the nature of what God has made things to be. And He, Jesus, has come perfectly righteous and able to absorb the punishment we deserved and take on our sin so that it can be dealt with. And now, now that he's risen from the dead and proved that he actually did defeat sin, he also has defeated death and paved the way in his own humanity, the first fruits, the first one to be raised from the dead, for all of us to enter into this new humanity and into this new creation. It is marvelous. He returns when he does return, he's going to return to make all things new. Well, verse forty five. He's kind of been leading up to this. He gets to Adam and he quotes Genesis two forty five. You see, we were all born in Adam. We were all born in the frustration of a cursed world. We've taken on the sinful nature that's pervaded the world. And now, now, it's all changed. No longer is that where we have to go. No longer is that the direction of travel for us. The new direction of travel is in Christ. We are to become like Him This new Adam, this better Adam. Not like Adam of the dust, but like Christ of heaven. We become like the heavenly man resurrected from the grave and seated on his throne. And you see that this new humanity, this new creation does begin in heaven. See that? But it begins in heaven... Not because heaven is the destination at the end, okay? I think often we misunderstand this. We think that we die, we go to heaven, and that's it. We've got to our destination, that's it. But no, Jesus is going to, he's going to unite the heavens and the earth, and he's going to make this new creation, which is better. So when we go to heaven, it's like a, we're kind of holding there until Jesus makes all things new. It's going to be the greatest day that there's ever been prefigured by the greatest day we've seen so far, the resurrection. And here's the thing. We will not be people who are any longer frustrated with who we are. We will be everything that we were made to be. So it begins in heaven, because Jesus is in heaven. But Jesus will come back for us. And there'll be this enormously glorious trumpet call. And we will return to him. But here is one thing that I just need to explain quickly, okay? Before we move on from this part of the passage. Because if you read this, you could start to get confused. Because it sounds like, in in some parts of this passage... That it's saying the opposite of what I'm saying. But it's not. And it's not saying the opposite of what Paul has already been saying. So bear with me, okay? Two minutes. It'll be worth your time. It says in the NIV that our bodies are sown in the natural and raised in the spiritual. So on first read, that could look like Paul is, is actually saying that Jesus saves us from these physical bodies. And this earth to go to heaven in a soul form. That's what it could look like, to escape the earth. But that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying quite the opposite. We can blame Plato, okay? And we'll get into that in another another conversation. But we can blame him for the way that we look at this and think about this and understand it. These words are tricky to translate. But when translators look at the original words and then they look at the context of Paul's argument... What they end up with is quite different explanations for those two words, okay? So that word natural is actually better understood the ordinary struggles of life in this world as it is, okay? Adam's world, sinful world, okay? And spiritual is better understood as a life and dwelt with the Spirit of God. Think about how Jesus lived, dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. That is where we're going. That's our destination in Christ. Okay? So those two words don't actually mean what they could seemingly mean when you first glance over this text. All right? What they actually mean is that we, in the natural, which is Adam's way, that's the frustrations and the struggles of this world, and then in the spiritual, talking about, Christ's spirit-filled life, which is physical, embodied, isn't it? We see that at the crucifixion. We see that in the way that he treats people and loves people and gets around people and eats and drinks with them. And actually, when you really get down to it, so so the commentators tell me, is that this is actually more physical, this word spiritual. It's just that we Naturally, want to split those terms into something ethereal and out there, and something that is you can touch and feel. All right, that's it. I promise. That's the two minutes of explanation. I know it's full on, but I think it's a really important point. And the point is this: you do not need to be anxious about missing out on living life to the full. That will always be elusive in this world, just out of your grasp. But in Christ. who you will be able to grasp, you can have an eternity of a life fully lived as life was meant to be lived. He's led the way, hallelujah. He has risen from the dead. All right, very quickly, life and victory, verses 51 through 58. Now, okay, we know the cause of of death is sin, but because Jesus has risen from the dead, we know that he has Dealt with that sin on the cross. It proves it. And that also means that death has no power over us. It has been defeated. Death has bullied us. It's caused us to hide. It's caused us to tremble from its threats. Even in some of the most advanced healthcare systems in the world, like the one that we have, even when we live in a time when the statistics are better than ever around health, death still hounds us. It still tries to bully us. But now, now that Jesus has defeated death and is the first to rise among many, Paul says here, although it will be last to go, Back in verse 24, you can see that. He will return on one great, final, everlasting day, and death will no longer exist at all. Can you imagine that? Death will have no existence. It will have no threat on your family's lives. It will have no threat on your life. It will have no threat on the lives around the world. It will have no threat when there's, because there will be no famine, there will be no suffering, there will be no pain. Oh. Now the day that Paul is talking about that this trumpet will sound is the same day that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, when he said a loud trumpet call will come, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the heavens to the other. And then I love Paul's use of these two great prophets, Isaiah and Hosea here in verses 54 and 55. These prophets discounted by so many by the passing of the years. People had given up hope. They hadn't kept trusting in God's word. Well, let this be a lesson. Never, ever, ever give up on the promises of God. They will always come true. From generations past, their voices still carry the glory of that truth. And they now Taunt death. People taunt us for believing in the resurrection, but the truth is these words and what Jesus did taunts death itself. Notice they don't taunt the people who are taunting them, they taunt death itself. It's like we're singing a football chant on over them, over death. You're not singing anymore. Come on, Jesus has won. The victory is ours. Death has no power over us. It's gloriously true. It was true from the beginning of time because we knew, because God knew this would be the plan, and he spoke through his prophets, and Jesus said it would happen this way, and it did. And now we no longer need to fear death. So keep going. Keep going going, Paul is saying here. Our hope will never fail. Our resurrected king is enthroned and he's waiting for the day to sound the trumpet for this new humanity to gather in his new creation. So as we come out of this year, I want us to remember that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every day we can glory in the resurrection of Jesus and say that no, death does have no hold over me. And so the way that we deal with pandemics and the way that we deal with all the threats that death brings is different to everybody else. It doesn't mean that We don't necessarily agree with certain actions to protect people or whatever. That's a different debate, but it does mean we are never scared, not on our own behalf anyway. For many, the worst possible case has happened, and so there will probably be an increased temptation for people for the rest of their lives to err on the side of caution. Don't take too many risks. Another pandemic might happen. Don't take too many risks. It might go all wrong like it did in 2020 and 2021. As Christians, we do not behave like that because our hope is in Jesus Christ, that he has risen from the dead, that he will return, that he is alive, and that we will live with him forever. Our hope is not in the things that can be offered to us in this fleeting world. The truth is this, this version of the world will come to an end, Adam's version, Jesus Christ's version will live, exist forever, and so will you, and so will I. I was reading a a blog the other day by Andrew Wilson, who heads up Think Theology, And he warned last week of the dangerous trend from releasing pressure on the NHS, which he says I fully supported, to preventing the NHS from being overwhelmed, to protecting the vulnerable, to reducing community transmissions to near, near zero, and on current trends may end up as abolishing death. That we should be concerned about some of that language because it errs on the side of caution to a point that would mean that we were paralyzed. We, as followers of Jesus, are never paralyzed. We walk forward even in the face of death. We take steps of faith. We take risks. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't think that some of these decisions were a good idea. It's a different debate. But it does mean that we keep going. We keep trusting We keep hoping and we think about it differently. As followers of Jesus, we will walk in faith. We will make disciples. We will keep filling this city with people who walk in his ways. We will keep getting alongside them and sharing the good news of Jesus. We will keep loving our neighbors, whatever it takes. Because Jesus is alive. And his new creation is breaking in. Through people like you, people like me, like the ordinary Galileans, who were used in resurrection power to change the world. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, Lord Jesus, King on the throne, you are enthroned, and you're enthroned with a body, one that prefigures. ours. (laughs) ours. <laughs> One that prefigures what we will be like because you are living life to the full as the, the king of kings. And Lord, we worship you now. We declare you as king. We say, Lord, we are not scared of missing out on life now because we know that we will live life to the full with you. Lord, we say that we are not scared of death because death has no power over us, we will forever live with you. So Lord Jesus, would you fill us with confidence? Would we be a confident, hopeful, positive people? Not a negative people who always err on the side of caution, but a people who look to you, believe in you, trust in you, know that your power is at work in us, and know that you are taking us home. One day you will return. And the, the trajectory of this whole creation in the end is the new creation. Your creation. Life as it was designed to be. And we will get to be who we were made to be. Lord, thank you. In your wonderful, resurrected name, Jesus our Lord. Amen.